This is HPR 2945 for Friday the 15th of November 2019. Today's show is entitled Saturday at Ogcamp Manchester 2019 and it's part of the series Interviews. It's hosted by Ken Fallon and is about 37 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is Interviews and Chat from the UK's largest floss event. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hi everybody, my name is Ken Fallon and you're listening to another episode of Hacker Public Radio. Today's show is going to be a series of recordings that were recorded at OGCAMP 2019 in Manchester. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. And I'm talking to? Uh, Marshall or Tim Timmy. And you are the owner of the HBR booth kit, surely? I am the current maintainer. Exactly. And you refuse to do this show, so I have to do it as an interview, which is a bit of a waste. Because I'm looking here at a print of of hpr-push-cam, which is live now on... ogcam.live. Which will be off the air by the time yeah, you be get this. this yeah, it could be a picture of a quarry or something. It could, yeah, it could be some round, anything random like that, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I decided to... Uh, one of the guys on Mastodon... Chalkholm asked if I was going to put up the web-enabled camera again this year. Hadn't even thought about it. I don't know where it was. So I um, was going to set it up with FS camera on a laptop. Okay, so now what he's talking about is, as I walk over here, there's a... Um, what would you call that thing? There's a clip here with a... It's a car uh, phone holder mount. Yeah, car phone, ho- car phone holder mount with yeah. one of these uh, metal tubey things. Bendy things. <laughs> things for holding you things, things. And in it is a mobile phone, which is pointing here. But this is the genius of this. It's running a regular Android phone, and then you've written a script. Tell us about that. Well, this, the script was... Uh, uh, my first attempts at using a laptop, images weren't great. So I thought there must be a way of doing this with a phone. And, uh, so I've got a spare old Nexus 5X Android phone and uh, fired up Termux, the, um, which is a terminal emulator for, for Android. Uh, I thought I'd install FS Webcam, which you can't. So uh, That's FS Webcam. Yes. Um, so a little bit of Googling. I found out the Termux exposed the API for the camera. And it's, a lit- was it a five-line script? Six. Yeah. Six. Six. Which is just a, a simple bash loop. Um, fires up the camera, takes a photograph. Image, image magic then resizes it to make it web-friendly then, but not a six-megabyte picture, just a few kilobytes. 
uh, and then SSH pass and SCP, send it up to my server. Okay, I'm, I'm manly enough to read this out. Yeah. While true, do fs cam space dash d forward slash dev forward slash video zero space dash dash jpeg space 95 space dash dash save space current dot jpeg g. So fs webcam, FS webcam then is... It's a Linux ins- well, it's Linux and Windows, but uh, it's on, on my Linux laptop. So that was just for testing with. Yeah. And then the Termux version is the one we're using now. Okay, so then to finish off the FFs webcam, you have SSH pass uh, dash F dot space dot SSH pass SCP dash port 22 and then the file and then up to the web server and then sleep and then that's it. That's it. But the Termux version, this is interesting. Why could you not do this, use the same script on Android then? Because SF webcam is not available on Android. Good answer. That is Excellent. the entire reason. Ticket sticker. <laughs> so yeah, the Termux version is basically the same. Instead of FS webcam, it's using Termux dash camera dash photo, which is uh, you can install it in Termux through its own package installer, and then it's the same. Uh, yeah, the convert is Image Magic, which again you can install in Termux, uh, and SSH Pass is installable in Termux. And SCP. So, the is this Termux? Is anything here not available on the Android store? Would you need an, a rooted application in order to do any of this? Uh, no, because that phone's running Copperhead, which is locked down. You can't you can't root an, a Copperhead OS Android phone. Okay, good to know. But know this. it doesn't work on my BlackBerry Key Two, which oh. is locked down. It won't let it access the camera. So your mileage may vary. Now, what I found interesting about this was that if you go and buy an IP camera, you're talking 150 whatever bucks. There's a robot walking past with an iPad on it. Okay, anywho. But if you buy a cheap Android phone, you could have essentially a web uh, monitoring solution for very little on a five-line script. Yes, and the advantage of the phone is you stick a SIM card in it, you can go and stick it on a cliff and look at the sea and leave it there. Yeah, okay, I get that. to do with uh, a lot of your web-enabled cameras that need to be plugged into the mains. Okay, cool. The uh, picture of this will be in the show notes at least. Okay. <laughs> right, thanks. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Cheers, Ken. And we're here at the Matrix booth, and I'm talking to... Uh, hi, I'm Ben. You might know me as Ben Pa. Um, that's what I'm known as on the, the Matrix e- ecosystem. And what is Matrix? People of uh, HBR will know I've interviewed The Matrix before at FOSTEM, but uh, give, us a, give us a quick rundown on what it is. Yeah, I'm sure Matrix is, is fairly familiar to your, to your listeners. Um, so Matrix is a decentralized communication platform. Um, it's self-hostable so that you can, uh, you can use your own server or start up a new server and host your own Matrix instance. It's also end-to-end encrypted, which means that messages are encrypted on the client, sent through the servers, sent over the internet, and sent to your, your recipient, um, and the whole time it's encrypted. So when they, they decrypt it, they'll be the only ones who've been able to read the message. Okay, and is this for text messages, or is it video conferencing? Ah, well, so, so Matrix the Standard uh, specifies the use of text messaging, uh, files, images, uh, sounds. Um, but Matrix can also be used as a signaling, signaling layer uh, for, for VoIP, so for WebRTC. Um, and in particular, we make use of Jitsi 
Um, and, and yeah, so, so we, we're a layer on top of uh, video messaging. Um, and yeah, we're a signaling layer on top. Okay, and Jitsi is what? Oh, Jitsi is a open source um, uh, video conferencing software. Uh, you, you host a server or you, you use a free, uh, free public server. Um, and in doing so, you can send uh, many to many. Uh, you can have basically video conferencing from multiple people. For single users, we would say use WebRTC and, and Matrix can be used natively there. Okay, and so what would that be exactly? Say I wanted to talk to my family with video. What, what would I need to do? So you, if you both had a, uh, a Matrix account, um, then you, well, if you, so let's say you didn't have a Matrix account. First of all, you would need to sign up for one. You create a room with, uh, with everybody in there. That's, a room is like a channel on IRC. Um, and when you've done that, you um, start a new video chat. For a multi-user chat, that will use Jitsi. For a single user or two-user chat, um, it will use WebRTC. Uh, and the, the UI-wise, the, the difference is, is transparent to the user. So they just, as far as they know, they start a new video, uh, video chat, and it's as simple as that. And, of course, that works across all platforms that Riot works on. So Riot is the flagship um, client for, uh, for, um, for Matrix. Um, so it works across all, uh, all, platform, all major platforms, um, including web, um, desktop, uh, Android, iOS. So what are you showing here on the boot? I'm looking down at your boot, and you've got a uh, screen, two Raspberry Pis, a phone connected to a MacBook Pro. Yeah. So we've got, yeah, we've got a lot of hardware on the table. So what we have is um, we're, we're trying to demonstrate the, uh, the, using the screen the different configurations of Matrix. So we're, we're showing off the network diagram of Matrix. We also have a few tabs open. So the network diagram is uh, showing three, um, three blue balls connected uh, like a triangle. And then around each of the blue balls are uh, green little lollipops stuck into them would be the best idea. So, yeah, as bizarre as that sounds, that's actually a, we found that to be a really nice way of demonstrating uh, the idea of centralization. So those big blue balls in the middle, they, uh, they show your servers. And what they show is that they send messages um, between each other uh, in a process that we call federation. So this is syncing messages and event history between only the rooms that the messages apply to. Um, in, in doing this, the, uh, the green lollipops, as you call them, these, these represent clients, uh, and they are then able to get the details from the servers. Uh, and in this way, you, you control who gets what messages via a mechanism of rooms. So only the rooms which are appropriate to the server and appropriate to the users uh, get to see those messages. This is the, the fundamental security part of Matrix. And then they, from a topology point of view, it's, it's quite similar to email, I guess. In, it's defederated. Yeah, absolutely that. I mean, it, it's Sorry, decentralized, yes. federated. Yes. Yeah, 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 it's decentralized uh, and federated. So yes, you really could liken it to email. When you send an email from your client, it goes to your server. That is sent to the correct server. Of course, in email's case, that's, uh, that could be multiple servers. Um, and, and then uh, the, 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 the message is only sent back to the clients as determined by the, the recipient server. Okay, perfect. So show me a typical demo here, and I will translate it on screen. So we're <laughs> clicking the tab, Alice in Wonderland, uh, some text, lovely. So what we've got, let, what we've got here, we've got um, several Raspberry Pis on the table. Uh, each of the Raspberry Pis is currently running a matrix server, uh, and each of the um, devices is attached to a bot, and those bots are sending the text from a Project Gutenberg uh, book 
Um, so we've got Gulliver's Travels coming from one bot, uh, Alice in Wonderland coming from another bot, and what we show with this demo is that when one of them is unplugged, yes, it stops sending messages uh, because it's not able to connect to the network any longer, but when it's plugged back in, it will continue to operate um, and it will also get backfill from the other servers. So it will be able to see the messages it missed because it knows when it went offline and it knows how to, how to catch up and it will catch up from the other server. And a Raspberry Pi is sufficient to run Matrix on it, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, these, funnily enough, our Raspberry Pi 4, which it, with its uh, two, I think this is a two gig of RAM edition, uh, died this morning. So we're running the entire operation from a pair of Raspberry Pi 3s. And yeah, for, for, for basic matrix usage, um, it's uh, one, one gigabyte on a Raspberry Pi 3 is sufficient. And we're showing that in the demo right now. Um, matrix, will, um, matrix will use more resources as the rooms that you join become more complex. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of a natural artifact of, of any messaging system. For the demo that we're doing here and for a huge number of people's usage, um, uh, a Raspberry Pi 3 is sufficient. I would also say that another demonstration of the improved low-level performance of Matrix has been the uh, release of uh, small hosted home servers from Modular. This is a commercial SaaS offering of Matrix, and they've been able to deploy um, low-cost, low-usage um, low servers uh, for a, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and that's something that's only come out this year. So this is a, a success that they've had this year. Okay, fantastic. And what's your involvement with the project? So I am, uh, I'm employed um, to be a Matrix developer advocate. So I go to events like this, I talk to people like you, and I also talk to anybody else who, who would like to hear about Matrix. I even talk to people who don't want to hear about Matrix. So what we do is we try to... We try to humanize the project. The, the problem with a lot of open source, and Matrix is, is not immune to this, is that it's a very complicated project. If you compare it to WhatsApp, then answering the question, well, I'm already chatting to my friends, why would I need anything else, is, is not obvious. To a, to a crowd like this and to a, to a listener like, um, like yours, it probably is, is, is obvious why you would want to have security, self-hosting, privacy, end-to-end -end encryption, data transparency. But it's really not obvious to everybody. Um, and by doing demos like these, uh, you know, something that's a little bit strange, maybe a little bit more interesting, we try to demonstrate the value of Matrix and how it can be used in other ways. And who should we... Uh, so you, you have a business, you're employed by somebody, you're getting paid. Where's, where's the money coming from? Who? So I, I'm employed by New Vector, which is the, um, the, the largest contributor um, to the Matrix ecosystem. Um, but my, my time is devoted to, to promotion of the Matrix. And how are they making money using Matrix? So they, they sell modular and they sell consultancy. Um, so most prominently, they, they are supplying Matrix consultancy to the French government to replace their internal communications. They've been doing that for uh, just over a year, um, and that project is, is, is continuing to be a, a profitable consultancy. Excellent. Thanks very much, Ben. Anything else we missed? Oh, no, only if the, you haven't done so. You must sign up for Matrix. Um, go and join the rooms. And, uh, yeah, yeah, please uh, get in touch with us over Matrix. Thanks. Yeah, but you can even go to, like, uh, jit.se forward slash something. Just put, type in your own thing and you get instantaneous access to a video conference. Is, is that, are we using Matrix when we do that? Uh, so you're only using Matrix when you're using a Matrix uh, to signal the VoIP. It wouldn't be related to, to just typing out your, your SIP address yourself. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the show. Hi, and I'm talking to... Alan Wood. And you are? 
Laurie Griffiths. So what are you starting you with, uh, with UL? What uh, are we looking at here? I'm looking at the desk, and can you describe what you, what's before me? Uh, what, what I'm here today showing is uh, the latest generation of a product called Black Ice. Now, uh, back in 2016, we started a project called MyStorm, uh, which was to produce some open-source hardware for programming FPGAs that works alongside the open-source software tool chains. What's an FPGA? Right. FPGA stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. Uh, basically, it's a chip that has lots of logic in it, but it's uncommitted to any specific application. So you can put your own and or gates and stuff? Yeah, you, you can think of it as a huge number of uh, logic gates that you can juggle and mix to make whatever you want. So that may be something simple, like a piece of electronics control equipment for maybe controlling some motors or some panels or something of that nature. Or it could be something more sophisticated, like you want to design your own new CPU, for example, because you've got a great idea on how a CPU should be designed. So you obviously can't just go to a chip maker and tell them what you want. You have to come up with a design and you have to test that design. Uh, the way that you do that is you use uh, some sort of tool for producing the design. Uh, in, the, uh, in, in the hardware world, that tends to be what's called a hardware description language. Uh, in most of our cases, people will use a tool uh, or a language called Verilog. Um, so you can then write your Verilog. You can express the logic of your design in Verilog. You then take that to Clifford Wolf's open source tool called Yosis which will take the Verilog program, if you like, as an input, and then it will synthesize the output. So it'll break it down into those logical parts that will be available in the chip, uh, and then it will output that through one of several different, what's called place and root pieces of software that target very specific FPGA. So for example, in our case, we're using the Lattice ICE40 FPGA on our chips, so that's what we would target for our device. So that's, I'm looking at a board here, it's about an inch, so... 50 four, by 50 mil. 50 by 50 mil. In metric uh, terms. In metric terms, thank you. <laughs> Let's not be old-fashioned. But yeah, so uh, yeah, it's almost a couple of inches by a couple of inches. Um, so back in 2016, you, you had to kind of go out and buy vendor type boards for development uh, and those weren't very hackable in our opinion so we figured we could do a better job do something design an open source uh, uh, hardware development board specifically for these open source FPGA toolkits using Yosis so um, we came up with the idea of this project called MyStorm uh, and to set ourselves a challenge I think it was like May after we'd done this talk where we decided in a pub like you do, <laughs> to do this thing, that by, uh, I think it was either the end of August or beginning of September, I think it was end of August, when Oshkamp was on in Hebden Bridge, that we'd have, you know, however many of these, enough to run a workshop and teach basic FBGA to the people at attending uh, Oshkamp on the Sunday. And, you know, we just kind of managed to do it. We received the boards, like, two days before the event, uh, had to do a bit of extra soldering and fixing and stuff on the boards, but then managed to run these workshops. 
on this board. And after that, people wanted to use the boards. Uh, you know, we got requested, well, could we buy these boards and things? So we figured out, oh, well, let's clean it up a bit, get the things fixed that we'd gotten wrong and start making boards for this and make them available. So, Is this like a business now? Uh, I haven't given up my day job yet. <laughs> but the dream is there. <laughs> the dream is there, yes. So um, we're now on like the fifth generation of this board, yeah. effectively, at the moment. Uh, and some of the changes we recently made is it, it, it actually comes in two parts. Uh, one of the problems you had before is even though it supports these standards, which are called uh, uh, PMODs, which you can buy these off-the-shelf parts that plug into the FPGA, piece of hardware like displays, LEDs. Uh, so what I'm looking at here is you're plugging in little add-on circuit boards. Um, have a standard connector format. Um, so although that's quite good, what you end up with after your prototype is something that's very difficult to put in a box because it kind of sticks out at all angles and it's mechanically it's not very stable so one of the design goals for the latest version of the board was to separate the really complicated bit that we have to get made in a factory with all the small surface mount stuff on and then the board that that plugs into which breaks it out to the PMOD you can take that off and then you can design your own board for this module to go into so you can integrate it into your own projects much more easily than you could before and in fact the Black Ice MX which is the current product that we sell is two boards designed around the Black Edge standard uh, which is these connector formats which defines what those are and that's an open standard and anyone can build a board that plugs in or a core that plugs into the board so we call that bit the carrier the lower bit so a bit like an ashtray from days of yore but a very small one and then there's a in the top so that enables yeah it was one of the things that the community had said to us for a while you know we've got some great stuff on there but can we have it so that we can put it in our projects much more easily so the center board looks very very compact and designed by whereas the other one is like a daughter module from a spaceship where you dock into exactly and that could be any board that you wanted to design if you wanted to do that and over here, I'm looking at one of these set up. So you've got the complicated main board plugged into a dock board. And inside of that, there's an extension board, which goes over to a breadboard. Yeah. So uh, For so, prototyping. Yeah. So for people that may not be familiar with a breadboard, a breadboard is basically a series of holes um, that you can put through hole components into, like LEDs, displays, resistors, capacitors, and build a small circuit, prototype circuit, on the breadboard. And then have your uh, development board then interact with that. So it's very good for just trying out very simple circuits, really. You can't do very complicated ones on there, but you can do very simple interfacing on there to simple through-hole components. Okay, and north of that, we have a more complicated board where you've got a, a LED digit display. Yeah, so uh, this is a seven-segment display of three digits. Uh, these are very commonly used in all sorts of different applications for just representing numerical values. 
in this case, they're also very good for educational. So if you're learning Verilog, learning how to drive one of these, it's a really good exercise because it teaches you all the basic uh, things that you need to know to get started with Verilog. So we find out from educational type applications, people tend to want to buy these to go with this. Uh, in this particular case, we're also um, using one of what we call our extender or breakout boards in between the development and the PMOD. That means that we can plug our logic analyzer or oscilloscope onto the pins in between. So we can actually look at the signals going between the two devices as well. So you could take that centerpiece out. So you're having a trouble, you could split this out, put the centerpiece in to tap in and do diagnostics and then plug it. And actually look at the signals and see what's going on. So if we've got some sort of problem, you know, and we say, no, it wasn't my code, my code's perfect. You know, you look at it and say, oh, well, maybe my code isn't quite perfect. I can see my timing's wrong and that's why it's displaying exactly the wrong thing. So it gives you a chance to get, it's, it's kind of a man in the middle attack debugging tool, if you like, so you can get in there and have a look at the signals. So again, that's another popular one. Um, and then you get things like a prototype or patch type module. Um, really, that's a bit like the breadboard in many ways. You have a header on that fixes in, that enables you to connect to the mix mod. And then you can actually solder components in onto here. Either through hole or... or... Yeah, and do a little prototype. So having worked out how it works on your breadboard and then you want to go to the next stage and make it more permanent, test it properly, then you can put it in on one of these proto or patch boards. Uh, another common use of this is you may just have another type of connector on the other side that has like a cad- compatible like header sort of spacing, in which case all you're doing is you're doing wires from one to the other and it becomes a simple kind of patch type board. Uh, so that's another common use of... Do you find people are actually using this to uh, prototype real products in the real world? Yeah, I mean, um, for example, I mean, people would use it for learning quite a lot. We have a lot of people that buy these boards purely for educational purposes. Well, that's personal type education because they just want to try and program an FPGA or learn Verilog, that kind of thing. We also have educational establishments that use them in situ, you know, on courses and things like that. But, um, for example, we have one uh, uh, chap that's actually designing an ultrasound uh, viewing device. So what he's using, he uses a high-speed analog-to-digital converter for the ultrasonic parts, so sending out signals, reading it back, decoding that digitally, processing it in the FPGA, and then he connects a Raspberry Pi to the FPGA and then the Raspberry Pi will then draw it up on the screen, you know, do the image processing so we can see what's going on on the screen. So he's kind of built his own ultrasound viewing yeah. device. Uh, and the reason that he uses the FPGA is because you need something to work very quickly. Yes. So you'd have trouble doing that with a microcontroller, for example. So it's very high-speed analog to digital conversion. And because you can decide what the logic gates arrays are, you... Correct me if I'm wrong here, please do. You basically write your program on the FPGA, a hardware program on the FPGA, and then you get light speed sort of processing. Exactly. You can have very, very low latencies, you know, down in the tens of nanoseconds from input to output. Uh, Whereas if you did that on a microcontroller, then you have to process every clock cycle, every several instructions. It's a lot, lot 
slower to do that. So you wouldn't be able to get back in time for your next sample, so you'd be dropping samples and it, it just wouldn't work. So basically you're the Raspberry Pi or the Arduino of FPGAs, that's, that's where you're going to. That kind of thinking, yeah. And, and we're trying to help to simplify that as much as possible. Yeah, providing the extra bits and pieces so you can plug in uh, and also uh, we have a microcontroller on here as well which is actually responsible for talking to the computer, the PC or the laptop so that when you send your design it will then program the FPGA for you and it will program the flash for you and all the utilities are built in you don't have to go and buy a JTAG programmer and all that kind of. we, we, we put everything on the board to make it easier uh, on the MX, we've also added two megabytes of SD RAM, which is a lot more than inside the FPGA. So, particularly if you're building a system on a chip, i.e., a soft WISP 5 processor or something like that, or your latest experimental CPU design, it's got some memory to use as well to store its programs and do its processing. So, we try and put all the bits that you need, you know, onto the board, really. And you're at mystorm.com. Um, yeah, if you go to mystorm.uk, actually. Yeah. Oh, mystorm.uk. I should have seen that is right here in front of me. And can you give me an idea of what the pricing of this yeah. is? So if you were to buy a, a Black Ice MX uh, in uh, American dollars, so if you were to go and buy that from Tindy, for example, it would be $59, which roughly translates given that Boris hasn't said anything really stupid in the last few hours, to about £45. <laughs> We're on one of the Brexit days here. We'll pick one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's actually quite reasonable for an FPGA, considering what the prices were. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were always very conscious when we started the project that we wanted it to be, you know, accessible to hobbyists, educational, etc. Not just professional FPGA designers kind of thing so we wanted to make it a purchase that someone could make and not worry too much about how much it was costing no we don't which is probably why I haven't given my day job up I I, I see where you're going with this so what else uh, do we have on here at the stand demo wise impress me okay well Laurie is showing um, and I'm going to put photos in the show notes even though I hate doing that because I need to remember to do it but I will because <laughs> there's some good stuff here about systems and chips and some of the retro type computing applications and games and things that he, as a user an early uh, user of the Black Ice and the more modern Black Ice MX uh, he's got lots of experience of developing with it so he can give you some examples of things that he's done okay hello hi I'm Laurie Griffiths uh, yes I've, I've been using uh, Alan's device for about 18 months or so now so I've done lots of projects with it so on the stand here you can see some retro computer in implementations uh, there's an Acorn Atom implementation and a Nintendo Entertainment System running Super Mario Brothers uh, on it Okay so you've got the Black Ice module here and then plugged in on the side I see there's a PS2 keyboard uh, what's this say? Uh Oh, that, that's, that, okay, um, that's not being used for, okay. for that. That's just this. Uh, this so there's a VGA P mod here yeah. that's uh, used to, to drive the VGA monitor. And you're powering it all off from three uh, uh, rechargeable batteries. Oh, the only the re- only reason I'm using the rechargeable batteries is because the the PS2 uh, uh, keyboard connector uh, 
that won't drive this uh, Microsoft wireless keyboard okay. without some extra power. So uh, it's got a five volt uh, power to, uh, to drive that. And so you're physically emulating the hardware of these old devices? Yes, that's right. So you, as an implementation of the 6502 CPU in there, plus all the video drivers, the keyboard drivers, and everything else. So you went down and physically designed this in all the logic gates? Well, where did you get that? Well, pe people have been uh, working on these for, for quite a few years now, but only, only recently on the open hardware and uh, the open source uh, software tools. Uh, but there's older implementations. So basically these are ports of ports of ports from th that people have been working on for many years. So I think the Nintendo one... Uh, was originally done in about 2012 on a completely different FPGA and then someone uh, ported it to a UFP5K uh, FPGA. So there's one called the Icebreaker that I've got here with an HDMI connector. So I ported it to that first and then I ported it to the Black Ice MX uh, board. Which the, the issue there is that there's this SD-RAM and it's a bit harder to use SD-RAM to, uh, to, for retro computers because you have to get exact timing. But uh, I've managed to do that for the Acorn Atom. There is also an implementation of the BBC Micro for Alan's earlier board, the Black Ice 2, but I haven't managed to port the, uh, to that to the new Black Ice MX board yet. As this Super Mario looks exactly like it did back in the day. Yes, it's the exact. It's the same software exactly that's running, and it should be a cycle accurate uh, implementation of it. Yes. Cool, excellent stuff. Well, thank you very much, guys, for uh, taking the time to do the interview. And again, the website is mystorm.uk. And do you have a website? Uh, no, uh, mo most of my stuff is on the uh, mystorm. Uh, Okay, and there's a forum at forum.mystorm.uk. Links will be in the show notes as well as photos of the booth. Okay. Hi, and we're at the Free Software Foundation booth, and your name is? My name is Eric Kuhn. And what is the Free Software Foundation for those that don't know? Uh, well, the Free Software Foundation is a non-profit organization that tries to empower people to basically get back control over their technology, which means use free software and promote it wherever possible. What's free software? Uh, free software is uh, software, um, well, it's like open source, but it has a, it has a certain philosophy. So f software has to follow for freedoms to be called free software, and that is you have to be allowed to use the software for any purpose. You must be allowed to, to study the software, so you must have the source code uh, available. Um, you must be able to share the software with your neighbor or your friend or whoever uh, so they can also benefit uh, from the same software as you are. And if you make any improvement to the software, for example, you fix a bug or, or you add a feature, you must be able to, to publish that feature so that the whole community can benefit from that. And how is this different to, say, something like the BSD license? Um, well... I mean, the BSD license is, or, or, or which BSD license, of course, because there, there are many, um, but the BSD license is, is a permissive, or as I like to call it, pushover license, because as soon as you <laughs> start, <laughs> uh, it, 
I mean, it's also still a free software license, and it's uh, still better than than publish publishing your software as a proprietary software. Um, but it, it, it allows uh, anybody who, who wants to use the software or, or to, to, to republish the software to do so as proprietary software. And that's bad for the user. So I'm looking at some of the, uh, some of the things that you have on here. You have something about DRM. So are you promoting DRM? Um, of course, we are against uh, digital restriction management. Um, and the, the flyer is actually quite interesting because... Uh, It, it, it has a nice example of, of where DRM is actually quite a bad thing uh, with Amazon who, who have their uh, ebook platform and um, people were buying 1984 uh, and were reading it and of course it was protected by, by DRM and then suddenly Amazon uh, from, from one day to another they started deleting all copies of 1984 <laughs> and which is kind of ironic actually given the book um, so I think that's reason enough to, to be against DRM. So, so, I mean, if you if you buy a book, uh, a copy of uh, a book or, or uh, a CD or whatever, uh, you, you should be able to, to share it with everybody in, in your uh, uh, peer group. Okay, and um, public money, public code. Tell us about that. That seems logical. I'm paying taxes, so the code should be public, obviously. Uh, exactly. Public Money, Public Code is our news campaign where we try to, to convince uh, public administrations or so governments uh, to, to use, not only use free software, but also if they uh, hire a company to, to uh, develop a software for them or they, they buy a, a software, they do that with um, public money, so our taxpayers' money, um, and that should be uh, published as free software, of course. I find it very difficult to argue with you on this because I completely, <laughs> I'm so on board with this as something that should be done that I can, I'm finding it difficult to play a devil's advocate here. Um, but let me come up with some, have you heard any arguments against that? <laughs> Maybe. Um, of course not. Everybody is uh, happy to use free software. Um, well, the most, uh, the, 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 uh, the most uh, argument against, or brought, brought up arguments against is, is um, the security aspect which I don't agree at all because um, is, if free software is developed in the open anyone can take a look at the code and, and uh, improve it and, and fix security bugs so they, they will get even uh, fixed even faster because more eyes uh, improve the software even faster Okay, very good and how, what can we do to help the free software along? Uh, where you can spread, of course, uh, you can of course spread our word uh, and, and, and share our materials and then sign, uh, for example, public money, public code, yep. um, our, our open letter, or you can become a supporter at fsfe.org/support um, and support us financially. Okay, very good. Thanks very much. And links to this will be in the show notes. Thank you. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. 
unless otherwise stated. Today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.